Let's pray together as we go to this word. Lord, I thank you so much for just the gift of music, the gift of allowing us, Lord God, to be able to worship you. I mean, you could just snap your fingers and wipe us all out if you wanted to. But we have all fallen far short of your glory. We've missed the mark and we are in need of your forgiveness. And we thank you so much by your grace and mercy. You've provided that through Jesus Christ on the cross. And because of his death, burial, and resurrection, and the proof that that all happened by his appearance to many, we can sit here this morning gathering around this word of truth. And we thank you for that, that you have preserved it through all the years. Our Father, speak to us through it this morning. You've already spoken to us through worship and song. As we have poured out our praises unto you, we receive the the benefit of that as well as our hearts are knit together and you embody the praises of your people. But now, Lord God, I pray that you would use this this word, this living and active word that is sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the soul and spirit as both joints and marrow. Exposing the depths and the things in our hearts, Lord God, because everything is open and laid bare to you. But I pray, Lord, that you would use this word to both convict and comfort us. And that we might emerge from this place as better followers of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Do your work in us, Lord, we pray. Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name, I ask it. Amen. I wonder how many of you remember an old uh, show, a uh, television show, game show that was on TV. You would, would open up and you would see three silhouettes of people on the stage and they would stand there and they would say, my name is so-and-so. And so you remember that similar statement, right? Will the real so-and-so please stand up? And what I was going to do this morning is I was going to have three people stand on stage this morning and just say these words. I am a follower of Christ. I am a follower of Christ. I am a follower of Christ. And then ask the question, will the real followers of Christ please stand up? So... There was a provocative and intriguing primetime show that consisted of a panel of interrogators that would ask very probing questions of three people who all claimed to be the person in question. And that show began with a brief description of the real person and then a litany of interesting accomplishments which usually made some sort of impact on the world. Two of the three guests were skilled liars. One was telling the truth. It was the objective of the panelists and the viewers at home, you and I, if we were watching it, to decipher which one of the three was telling the truth. Anyone remember that show? I love that show. It gripped my attention. I was glued to it until I found out who the genuine article person was, right? There was something very revealing about that program that I think back on now. First, it underscored the fact that most of us are easily influenced 
by persuasive words and a convincing face. If, after all, Kitty Carlisle could be fooled, you're going, who? What? Who's that? (laughs) Then we could be duped. Second, assuming another person's identity is not as difficult as many people think. People lie very well. In fact, some individuals are so skilled at it that when the truth is finally revealed about them, those around them simply refuse to believe it. I just read an interesting book surrounding that very thing. Not a Christian book, but nevertheless, it was very, very revealing. It's a book by Malcolm Gladwell called Talking to Strangers. And it unpacks how people can lie and get away with things for years on end. I mean really, really well-known people until they're finally exposed. And when people try to expose them all along the way, nobody ever believes it. Hitler was one of those people. But to tell the truth illustrates something very relevant to the church at large, something very dangerous, that following Christ can be feigned and people can be fooled. But only for so long. In a book entitled Working the Angles, pastor and author Eugene Peterson uh, relayed a story when he was alive, when he wrote those things, um, by the author Ann Tyler that brings that point to a frightening reality. As a matter of fact, I'm going to read a little bit from that. Ann Tyler told the story of a middle-aged Baltimore man who passed through people's lives with astonishing aplomb and expertise in assuming roles and gratifying expectations. This novel opens with Morgan watching a puppet show on a church lawn on a Sunday afternoon. And a few minutes later, into the show, a young man comes from behind the puppet stage and asks, is there a doctor here? After 30 or 40 seconds of silence from the audience, Morgan stands up slowly and deliberately approaches the young man and asks the question, what's the trouble? And the puppeteer's pregnant wife is in labor and a birth seems imminent. Morgan puts the young couple in the back of his station wagon, sets off for Johns Hopkins Hospital. And halfway there, the husband cries, the baby's coming. So Morgan, calm and self-assured, pulls to the curb, sends the about-to-be father to the corner to buy a Sunday paper and a substitute for towels, uh, as a substitute for towels and bed sheets, and delivers the baby, no problems. He then drives to the emergency room in the hospital. He puts the mother and the baby safely on a stretcher. Then he disappears. And after the excitement all dies down, the couple asks for Dr. Morgan. And they want to thank him. No one has ever heard of Dr. Morgan at that hospital. They're puzzled and they're frustrated and they can't express, you know, that they can't express their gratitude to this doctor. Several months later, they're pushing their baby in a stroller and see Morgan walking on the other side of the street. And they run over and greet him, showing him the healthy baby that he brought into the world. And they tell him how hard that they had looked for him and of the hospital's bureaucratic incompetence in tracking him down. And in an unaccustomed gush of honesty, he admits to them that he's not really a doctor. In fact, he runs a hardware store. But they needed a doctor, and being a doctor in those circumstances, he said, was not all that difficult. It's an image thing, he tells them. You discern what people expect, and then you fit into it. 
You can get by with it in all the honored professions, he says. Morgan has been doing this all of his life, impersonating doctors and lawyers and pastors and counselors as occasions presented themselves. And then he confides, quote, you know, I would never pretend to be a plumber or impersonate a butcher because they'd find me out in 20 seconds, unquote. (laughs) Now, that's a story, right? But something similar happened some years ago in a town not very far from here, just about a half an hour from here. A man was exposed as being a world-class faker. For years, he had played the role of a priest, a teacher, a counselor, and who knows what else, all across the country. And make no mistake, if Morgan can fake being a doctor... You can fake being a committed Christian, but only for so long. Sooner or later, like Morgan in the story, like the man found in that town not too far from here, and like the contestants on the game show, one's true identity will eventually be found out. Jesus has a way of doing that, doesn't he? He cuts through the facade and he sees past the smiles. He hears beyond the words. He looks through the eyes deep into our souls and he knows what's inside the hearts of every single human being. And I wonder how many people sitting in churches today, men, women, teens alike, are telling the truth about their spiritual condition. How many people are sitting here possibly this morning or watching online when this goes up online? that they have put on their best Christian face to the people around them, yet deep down inside, they know that they haven't really truly committed themselves to following Christ. I wonder how many people like Morgan think, well, if being a professing follower of Christ is what people need from me, then in these circumstances, I can be a Christian. It's not all that difficult. It's an image thing. You discern what people expect, and then you fit into it. But friends, Jesus never falls for that kind of thing, does he? Committing oneself to Christ is far more than maintaining an image, isn't it? It's more than something you wear when the occasion presents itself because it's got to be your life or it will be your downfall. If a person comes to Christ because they think it will make their life easier, they have been the victim of fakery. Because if you believe that making a verbal commitment to Christ and attending a church every week is proof of that commitment, then you're deceiving yourself. According to Elton Trueblood, that is not true commitment to Christ. It's cheap Christianity, is what he called it. He goes on to say that, quote, it is cheap whenever the people think of themselves as spectators at a performance, unquote. But I want you to know the real truth is that coming to Christ is easy. Following Christ is the hardest thing you will ever do. Coming to Christ is easy. Following Christ is the hardest thing that you will ever do. And that is not something that you will often hear today. Jesus called for more from his followers than a simple nod of agreement. He compels us to get involved in the action. And that demands the discipline of commitment. Commitment makes no excuses. Commitment stages no performance. Commitment costs something of us. The truth is, commitment to Christ 
And you know this costs all that we have, doesn't it? But are we ready for that? Are we ready for that? During the course of Jesus' three and a half years of public ministry, he was surrounded by crowds of followers, okay? Crowds of followers. But were they really devoted to him? The closer he got to the cross, when it got really, really tough to be a follower of Jesus, the more clear-cut his call to commitment became, the more common people's excuses also became. Turn to Luke chapter 9, if you would. Luke chapter 9 and verse 57. We're going to begin there. Verses 57 to 62 is what we're going to look at today. Now, the same barriers which hindered full devotion to Christ then still kind of hinder people today. Same basic categories. For some, of, of, for some people, these words may sound hauntingly personal as they echo down through history. One thing about hedging on full commitment to Christ, the excuses people offer rarely change. But neither does the price of becoming a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. See, powerful commitment demands personal concessions. And that's what this text is getting at. That personal concessions are exactly what we're hesitant to make in following Christ in some areas. Therefore, our commitment sometimes wanes. But there are at least four personal barriers in this text that we want to outline this morning which cause a lot of people to stop short of full commitment to Christ. And it's illustrated in their responses here in this text. Follow along with me as I read. Verse 57, Luke 9. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Four personal barriers right here in this text. Well, we're going to add another text to it in a moment. But, And the first one is this. The distraction of personal comfort. This is the first barrier which causes most people to stop short of commitment to Christ fully. The distraction of personal comfort. That's in the first two verses here, 57 and 58, as they were going along. Someone said to him, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, look, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. New American Standard said, says that someone said to Jesus. If you compare a parallel passage in Matthew 8, verse 19, it identifies this certain man as a certain scribe. Or according to the NIV, a teacher of the law. Here's a person that you would think would already be committed. The scribes were the authorities of the Jewish law. 
They were the educated elite of the day. To make a statement like, I will follow you wherever you go to Jesus was an extreme concession for that man. As a scribe, this man would be personally breaking with a strong system of teaching and tradition by placing himself under Christ's authority. The scribes prided themselves as being the authorities, the teachers of the law. Not followers of other teachers, they were the authority. People thought it a privilege to follow them. And so it was indeed a concession for this man to declare such incredible allegiance to Christ. But as John MacArthur once said, strong profession does not necessarily reflect strong commitment. Christ responded to him by getting down to the truth of what total commitment really means. And he says to him, you want to follow me? You better know what you're signing up for. Count the cost, in other words. You better know what you're signing up for. Because following Christ could cost you the basic comforts of life. That's a little bit relevant today, isn't it? It could The greatest teacher who ever lived, Jesus Christ, did not even have the physical comforts that most animals enjoy. The birds of the air have nests. The foxes have holes. Foxes have holes. The birds have nests. But Son of Man doesn't have anywhere where he can kind of lay down and call his own. Jesus didn't even have a bed he could consistently count on of his own. He didn't have a house. He didn't have a horse. He didn't have a tent. He was born homeless. His ministry had no headquarters or formal address. And he was buried in a borrowed tomb. What a contrast to what most of us deem as a successful ministry today. Which boasts of 200-acre campuses, multiple staff personnel, multi-million dollar budgets, Learjets to take them all over the world to propagate false gospels, and luxurious homes scattered all over the place. Christ changed the world, my friends, and he didn't have a car, and he didn't have a smartphone. He didn't have a computer, an iPad, or an expense account. He didn't have an office. He didn't have a website. He didn't have a Facebook page, Instagram, or a Twitter account. Heaven forbid. He sometimes stayed with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, but as for a home base, he didn't have any. Unless you want to call the Mount of Olives on the ground a headquarters. You see, committing ourselves to fully following Christ carries with it the possibility that we might have to give up the comforts of our homes even at some point. Like the scribe, people, like this scribe, people can see the benefits of coming to Christ, can't we? There's all kinds of benefits. They get fed. They see miracles. They experience healing. They, they, they have acceptance, excitement. But what happens when the demands get too high? What happens when following him costs us a personal comforts? But in John chapter 6, the, the, the cost got a little too high for some of those followers because when identifying with Jesus' strong statements began to get risky, like 
You can't follow me unless you, you know, you eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's how you get into heaven, right? That's how you have salvation. John chapter 6. Began to get risky. We find that as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew. Let's just look at that statement for a minute. In John chapter 6, and interestingly, it's down there in the verse 66. We'll back up a little bit. And Jesus says, you know, leading into this, the context says back in um, verse, let's look, 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give him for the life of the I give for the life of the world is, is my flesh. And then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. And where did he say these things? In a synagogue of all places. Then verse 60 Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to him, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. And so Jesus was saying to him, get what I'm saying here. I'm not talking literally. The words that I'm telling you are spirit. They're life. But some of you here don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who didn't believe and who it was that would betray him. And so in verse 66, look at the result of that. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. You see, to the Savior, impressive words mean nothing. Jesus was never taken in by empty professions of faith, nor is he today. In John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, John writes, Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. Now note this, but Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. Someone once said, a believer comes to Christ, a disciple comes after Christ. When Jesus answered the the way that he did to this man, this scribe, he wasn't discouraging the scribe, he was opening his eyes. He was saying to him, I know you want to follow me now, when everything's going well. The ministry's growing, 
Things are happening. But what will happen when the going gets tough? Like in John chapter 6. Have you thought about that? That's what he was asking the man. And nothing more is said after that about the scribe. We can only assume that he fades out of the picture, realizing that the cost may have been too high for him. And sometimes the cost of our commitment, of commitment is our personal comfort. Because that's what diverts us from full devotion. But Jesus may not require everyone who comes to him to go homeless. But what if? There are no conditions attached to full commitment to Christ. You cannot say to Christ, I will follow you as long as, if only, or except for. Those phrases don't apply. He does not negotiate conditional contracts. I've told you the story before about me coming to faith and saying, I'll follow you, Lord, anywhere you want. Just don't ask me to be a preacher. No conditions on the contract. There can be no reservations, no exceptions, no exclusions, no fine print. Jesus doesn't allow it. But ours is an age of comfort, isn't it? It really is. We begin to squirm when God makes demands of us. Wilbur Reese once captured that spirit of our age when he wrote this. I'd like $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Now, how many people come to Christ that way? Could this be our mindset? Because I pray that it's not for any of us. Because Jesus wants wholesale commitment. $3 worth of God's not going to cut it. There's no such thing anyway. He's not a Burger King. You can't have him your way. You just have to take him as he is, Lord of all, right? He is the boss of you. (laughs) And he's the boss of me. And in light of this example, I have to ask myself, is my need of personal comfort distracting me from all Christ wants me to be? And you may have to ask yourself that same question. One of the things we have to be upfront about with people, especially as we present Christ to them, is this kind of thing. It's that Jesus didn't come simply to make us happy and comfortable. He came to radically wrench us away from what's killing us. Right? And sometimes the thing that's killing us is our personal comfort. I love author John Ortberg's insights here. Larry Loudon is a University of Hawaii philosophy professor who has written a book about risk in which he devotes an entire chapter to household dangers. Some are what you'd expect, right? 460,000 people a year are injured by kitchen knives. You'd expect that, right? Some are what you'd expect, 
like manual and power saws. They account for 100,000 injuries every single year. But some risks are surprising. You got drapes in your house? Every year, 20 people in America are strangled to death by drapery cords. Some 4,000 of us seriously injure ourselves on pillows. Every year. But I think the most dangerous object in your home, he says, is the one that not even Larry Loudon talks about. It's this. It's the back-reclining, deeply-cushioned, foot-resting little death trap called an easy chair. It's usually spelled E-Z because using two letters takes a whole lot less effort. Or lazy boy, right? We don't buy these chairs because of their beauty, and they're not called challenge chairs, and they're not called adventure chairs. They're easy chairs. And we buy them for one reason only. Comfort. Personal comfort. I want to give you a picture of what this chair can do. So just, I was going to put one up here today, but it's not enough room. But just, just imagine donning your sweats and putting on your slippers and breaking out your favorite kind of food, you know, comfort food. Oreos and a glass of cold milk. What's the single most important device someone sitting in an easy chair needs to hold in his hand? Right here. The remote, right? Yeah. He says, I was at a friend's house recently and discovered that TV manufacturers have actually invented a remote for children called the Wiimote. The Wiimote. Not making this up. So little, little TV addicts can get a head start on learning how to handle the remote control. Imagine sprawling out in that chair with the lights turned low. Comfort food on a tray at your side, the remote in your hand, and the world locked outside. And you say it's because of a pandemic. Right? The world's locked outside your door. Do you feel ready to spring into action in that place? Right? Are you poised for an explosion of growth and development in your life? If God asks you to do a difficult thing, are you likely to say yes, looking like that? I'll get right to it, Lord. Jump out of your chair. If this is what your life is about, pursuing personal comfort and trying to minimize problems and stress and maximize safety and security, does this idea make your heart beat faster? Would you be excited about getting out of bed every morning to head for that chair? Don't say yes, please don't say yes. <laughs> Maybe you didn't even leave the chair. Maybe you just fell asleep in it in front of the TV and you get up in the morning out of the chair. Now I'm meddling, right? Do you think that you will even be able to stay awake if you're of that mindset for the rest of this sermon? What's so dangerous about that chair? It's not the things that you do while you're in it. It's the things you don't do. The relationship you never deepen. The people in need you never serve or you never even see. It's the great prayers that you never pray 
or the noble thoughts you never think, the adventures that you never take, the races you never run, the battles you never fight, the laughs you don't laugh, and the tears you don't cry. You were made for something more than life in that chair. It may be the most dangerous object in your home and in mine. Because it does have a lure, does it? Not? Scientists at Berkeley did a study years ago. They put an amoeba in an ideal environment. Perfect temperature, perfect humidity, perfect amount of light, perfect food conditions. A little amoeba had no stress, no problems, no challenges. You know what happened to it? It died. Too much comfort is lethal. Yet there's another barrier besides personal comfort that can play havoc with a person's, person's total commitment to Christ. It's the diversion of a prior agenda. The diversion of a prior agenda. Verse 59. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Permit me first. This is the classic me first scenario. Mentality. If the first man's excuse to total commitment was I've got needs... This man's excuse was, I've got plans. What seems on the surface to be a reasonable request was really a self-serving statement. Scholars are divided on this issue of the man's request, actually. But some say that the man's father had just died and the request was to go and tend the burial responsibilities before taking up with Jesus. Others, however, have a different view. I believe that this man wasn't interested in going to his father's funeral at all, but getting his father's inheritance. He was putting off following Christ until after his father, still very much alive during this scenario, lived out the rest of his life and this man received the inheritance as a son. So the phrase, bury my father, is still used that way in the Near East today as a figure of speech. The superficiality of the man's words of commitment were immediately understood by Jesus. This man had a personal agenda. His commitment to follow Christ was secondary. Friends, following Christ cannot be an add-on to an already full lifestyle. Why not? Because everything else will take priority in your life. Guaranteed. Let's face the facts. When people have a prior agenda, Jesus doesn't come later on the list. He never makes the list at all. Jesus Jesus wasn't naive. He went right to the heart of this matter and made this enigmatic statement to the man. Let the dead bury their own dead. In other words, let the world take care of the things of the world. He got up close and personal with this guy But as for you, he says to him, you go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. That's Christ's agenda. Is it yours and mine? Someone said one of the great illusions of our day is that we can have Jesus' life without without following Jesus' way. We sometimes live as if what Jesus said was, Seek ye first all these other things and the kingdom of God will be added unto you. That's not what he said, is it? Seek ye first the what? The kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Keep the main thing the main thing. We got it all reversed. 
Commitment to Christ means not being distracted by the world's comfort or diverted by the world's agenda. That was Paul's challenge to Timothy as well. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he said, Endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And as Christ's soldier, do not let yourself become tied up in the affairs of this life, for then you cannot satisfy the one who has enlisted you in his army. That's 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. This prior agenda will always, always, always divert us from full devotion to Christ. It has kept thousands of people from him. I've heard it way too many times as a pastor. They're too busy building their businesses or building their houses or building their families or building their bank accounts. And then they wake up one day and they're facing death without Christ. And then what? Well, it's too late for me because I spent my life doing these other things. Well, first of all, it's never too late for anyone, right? Regardless of what you've spent your life doing, it's never too late. But I'm warning you now not to spend your life doing those things or waste your life doing those things before you come to Christ. Don't get to that point. None of those things that we strive for in this life are really worth the trouble. Matthew 16 and verses 24 through 26 says this. Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must put aside your selfish ambition, shoulder your cross, and follow me. If you try to keep your life for yourself, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find true life. And, and how do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul in the process. Is anything worth more than your soul? Anything worth more than your soul? I love that. William Barclay refers to this scene as the tragedy of the unseized moment. The tragedy of the unseized moment. Christ personally gave this man an opportunity for salvation. He said, follow me. And the guy said, now let me go bury my father first. I'll do that later. I'll follow you later. You know, there may have been hundreds of disciples in the crowd that day, but Christ chose that guy and offered the invitation and, and the guy made excuses. He put off following Jesus, but Jesus knows the heart of every single man and woman. He knew that the man didn't want to follow him right there and then. He also knew that if he didn't follow him right there and then, he probably never would. Has Christ given you a personal opportunity to follow him? Anyone that's within earshot of this message? But your plans have caused you to put it off? Maybe you said some, someday maybe, but right now, well, I've got things that are a little more important right now that I've got to get done. There is nothing more important than coming to Christ. Amen. Commitment to Christ is often dissolved by our perceived needs, the distraction of our personal comfort. It's also dissolved by our prior plans the diversion of a prior agenda. But far and away, total commitment to Jesus is often spoiled by something else. It's the third thing in this text. It's the de deterrent 
of powerful relationships. Look at verse 61. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Jesus says to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So the first two are, I've got needs, I've got plans. This one is, I've got relationships. I've got people. I've got people. Again, this man's response seems reasonable to us, right? I'm going to go say bye to everybody. But again, Jesus sees right through that excuse and family ties he, thought, he knew are one of the strongest deterrents to commitment to Christ. A decision to follow Christ when it's supported by your family and friends is just a wonderful, beautiful experience, isn't it? Anybody have that experience? I didn't have that experience necessarily. However, when it results in misunderstanding, in antagonism, in disparagement, and disownment, it can be very, very painful and emotional, emotionally unbearable. Think about people in, in Muslim families. If they come to Christ, they are completely ostracized and possibly even might be threatened with death. You see, the power of family pressure upon some people is absolutely incredible. Enough to keep them from commitment to Christ. Yet a commitment to follow Christ is so comprehensive that all other relationships must pale by comparison. In Luke chapter 14, in verses 25 and 26, it says, large crowds were going along with him and he turned to them and he said this. Now listen to this. Mark these words. They're hard to accept. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So that begs the question, does following Christ really mean that we must hate our families? Of course it doesn't. Christ commanded us to love even our enemies. Certainly he does not want us to abandon our love for our families or neglect our friends in order to follow him. He demands, however, that no relationship stand in the way of our relationship to Christ, right? Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34. Do not think, Jesus said, that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. You see, he's saying the same exact thing that Luke wrote. This man in Luke's gospel obviously had a divided loyalty. On one hand, he wanted to follow Christ, but on the other, he kept peeking back over his shoulder to see what everyone else would think. And Jesus said, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God, in verse 62. I mean, you cannot plow a straight furrow when you're looking behind you, can you? 
You're going to veer off course. Divided loyalties simply will not work. So don't look back. It's dangerous. We're we're unusable. Mark this now. We're unusable until we become undivided. Psalm 86.11 says it this way. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. Paul knew the importance of all of this in Philippians 3. We don't have to turn there, but you could look at it. Philippians 3, uh, verses 3 through 7, and then 13 and 14. He learned three important lessons when it came to pursuing hard after Christ. It was learn how to leave your past, learn how to live in the present, and learn how to look toward the future. And all of that is wrapped up in coming to know Christ. See, commitment to Christ is a discipline. Requires personal concessions. And it stands in direct contrast to the self centered, self serving, self sufficient spirit of our age. It's not excused by disruptions of personal comforts, personal agendas, or personal relationships. But there is still one final excuse left. At least one more obstacle to this total commitment is found in Mark's account of the same scene in Mark chapter 10. And verse 17, Mark 10, verse 17, beginning in verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Well, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. The deception of personal complacency. That's the third thing. I mean the fourth thing here. The deception of personal complacency. This is the I'm all set, I'm okay idea. That was my undoing. I'm all set, I don't need that. To my father-in-law, through the power of the Holy Spirit, exposed my need. And I just fell apart realizing how much I needed Christ. We're not okay before Christ. And we're not all set, are we? We're broken people. And only Christ can make us complete. Mark this truth. It doesn't matter how enthusiastically you come to, tr- to Christ. This man ran, says. It doesn't matter how emotional your approach seems to be. This man fell to his knees It doesn't even matter how insightful your words are as you make your appeal. This man asked the exact right question. What must I do to be saved, basically? What matters, however, is how unconditionally you will follow Christ. You may have a lot of good points to your arguments like this man, but folks, 
People are not saved by good points, are they? True commitment to Christ consists more than a, of more than a good argument. True devotion to Jesus is confirmed by a radically changed heart. There was only one thing that was stopping this man from following Christ fully. You think it was because he had a lot of money. And that's what the text seems to indicate. But I think you need to look below the surface of that a little bit and find out that he was spiritually complacent. Why do I say that? Because he thought really he didn't need to be saved. When he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him, keep those commandments. He said, oh, I've kept them all. He thought he had been doing everything right. But obviously he was undeniably wrong because there was one great commandment that he wasn't keeping and that was all of them. Because he didn't put God first. He thought that he was good enough. That is until Jesus pointed out his glaring deficiency. No one is good enough. If he were, Jesus would have died needlessly, right? Notice that Jesus didn't reject this man or his approach. In fact, Christ never rejects anyone who is seeking after him. The one who comes to me, Jesus says, I will certainly not cast out. He said that in John 6, 37. But notice also that Jesus felt a love for him here in verse 21. Verse 21. You know what the word there is the, is the most astounding word for love in the New Testament. It's agapao. It's that God kind of love type. Of, it's that unconditional type of love. You see, it's not Jesus who rejects people. It's people that reject Jesus. Each of these men refused to let go of the one thing that was keeping them from total commitment to Christ. So let me ask you, what is the one thing, the one thing, that one condition that you may have placed on following Jesus with all of your heart? What is your last reservation? Is it your personal comfort that's distracting you? And trust me, I'm asking myself all these things at the same time. Are, you person, are your personal plans diverting you? Maybe it's your personal relationships that are deterring you. Or is it spiritual complacency that is deceiving you? Coming to Jesus means coming to him on his terms. It means stooping down, picking up a cross, and carrying it to the place where your life ends and his life begins. It means being willing to give up personal comforts. It means being available enough to give up personal plans. It means being loyal enough to Jesus to stop letting those relationships that you prioritize so much cause you to compromise the truth. And it means being truthful enough to give up thinking we're good enough as we are. Who would want that? Those who recognize that commitment to Christ means that in eternity we have everything to gain and nothing to lose. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, Jesus said, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Let me wrap it up with one of the most moving stories that I ever read about. And that's the life of William Borden. You know about the life of William Borden? He portrays the essence of this kind of commitment 
William Borden was born to a very rich family and heir to the Borden Dairy Company. The world was at his fingertips. And because of his heritage, his life was seemingly predetermined, that is, until he met Christ as his Savior. This deep, radical change in his life revealed Christ in all of his endeavors. In in time, he felt called to the mission field, China specifically, to a small group of Muslims there. And he planned to turn his back on the opportunity for a wealthy and successful career in his family's business. He prepared well. And so during his seven years of schooling, while at Yale University, he gave away his entire fortune. And during that time, he wrote two words on the back flap of his Bible. No reserves. No reserves. And just before leaving for China, his father became seriously ill and was close to death. His family pleaded with him to stay and run the company. Right? Bury my father. Take the inheritance. But William was determined to be engaged in this ministry of Jesus Christ of the gospel. And so upon leaving, he wrote two more words on the back flap of his Bible. No retreat. On the way to China, during a stopover in Egypt, he contracted cerebral meningitis and he died within one month. He never made it to China. He never got to speak to that group of Muslims. All those years of school, all that sacrifice, all that self-surrender, a dedicated life, seemingly wasted, right? But was it? Apparently, before his death, William Borden had the chance to consider the course of his life in Christ and the choices that he had made along the way. Because when they opened the back flap of his Bible, there were two more words eternally preserved. No regrets. No reserves, no retreat, no regrets. That, my friends, is the essence of following Christ, of commitment to Christ. What will be written on the back cover of your life when Jesus comes for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are convicting words. Even as I speak them, help us, Lord God. Help us because we need your help by the power of your Holy Spirit to give our lives to you fully. And that's going to take a lifetime, Lord. But help us to recognize when we're holding back. And make the necessary steps, Lord God, to becoming more closely a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And whatever that means, Lord God, only you can tell each of us individually what that means for us. May we not make excuses. And at the end of our life, may we finish it, Lord God, having lived our lives with no reserves with the attitude of no retreat, recognizing that we have no regrets. For this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.